From ThatShelf.com, this is Black Hole Films. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. What's a black hole film, you ask? Well, you know those films you always meant to get around to watching, but you never did for whatever reason? Well, that's what they are. And this podcast is all about embracing them and checking those films off our lists and talking about them and whatever else happens to come up. I'm Canadian filmmaker Jeremy Lalonde, and I will be your host. You can follow me on Twitter at LalondeJeremy, or check out my website, JeremyLalonde.com, for more information on me and my projects. If you like the show, please subscribe to it, rate, review it, and leave a comment on whatever platform it is you're listening. It really does make a difference in helping to get more ears tuning in. And if you like this show, check out the others on the ThatShelf.com family of podcasts. And without further delay, let's get into this week's film. This is episode 195, and today I'm joined by filmmaker Ingrid Veninger. Ingrid's most known for films like The Animal Project, He Hated Pigeons, Porcupine Lake, and most recently, The World or Nothing. And we're going to sit down and watch a film together. So we're sitting down to watch Pariah. I'm Jeremy, and I have not seen this film. I have not seen this film. I'm Ingrid, and we have both not seen this film. And I don't even know if I'd heard of this film before you mentioned it. Um, I know that it's, I know, all I know is the filmmaker is also the filmmaker that made Mudbound, right? Correct. Yeah, so that's what I know about uh, D. Ross, is that her name? D. Reese. D. Reese. I was so close. <laughs> and so what made you so pick close, this film? So close, but wrong. But wrong, um, yeah. Yeah, D. Reese. So basically, I had seen Mudbound, and I had gone to a panel where she spoke. Um, it was at a Mill, the Mill Valley Film Festival. Okay. And I just loved how she spoke about filmmaking and her process. And she'd had a whole bunch of different jobs. I think she worked um, at Dr. Scholl's and she, you know, she just did a variety of things and then went to NYU and was mentored by Spike Lee. And Spike kind of took her under his wing and she she worked on a couple of his films. And then from there, I think for her graduate um, thesis project, she did uh, one act of Pariah. So she essentially was working on a feature and then decided to make a short calling card film which eventually helped her fund Pariah. And she was speaking about the process of that. And in fact, took her five years to raise the money to make this first feature film. But when I remember hearing about Pariah, and I think it won an award at Sundance maybe, or maybe won an independent spirit award. I think it won the John Cassavetes award at the independent spirit awards and anything associated with Cassavetes kind mm. of perks my ears up. So that's when I had my sights on D. Reese. And I, you know, I'd seen Mudbound. I was kind of tracking her career, but I never had, had gone seen back. her first breakout, which, you know, I'm really looking forward to watching tonight. Yeah. Yeah. And I was happy to know that because it, because it, it's on the criterion, like if you're, if you have like a school university account, uh, for those who do, you're able to get it through that criterion on demand database. It's not on the criterion channel that I'm aware of. Uh, but I think it's available online and, and you can probably rent it from somewhere. I'm sure as well. I'm sure. Yeah. Well, we're, we're watching it on the, you know, education criterion channel. 
Um, so we could do we could dig in a little bit and see how how it could be viewed um, out there more easily and more accessibly. Yeah, we'll we'll talk about that after. So so mm-hmm. with that, so I don't I know nothing going into it other than than the filmmaker. You know, we know very little about this no. film. We're watching the, it for the first time. But the title is Pariah. So yeah. when you think of the word Pariah, what does that conjure for you? I mean, a pariah for me is like something that is trying to feed off of something else, right? Or something that's trying to take from something. Yeah. Okay. Sure. How am I? I think- I'm getting the definition of the word wrong. No, no. I think that like it, it's not really what the definition is. What does it conjure for you? So it conjures that kind of like vampiristic energy, right? Yeah. So feeds on something else. Yeah. And for me, I think of. Um, something that is low or, or despised or ostracized. I think of that as like a pariah, like stay away, you know? It means like outcast or something, doesn't it? Okay, outcast. Mm-hmm. I think so that changes entirely. For some reason, I think I was thinking piranha for a second. Like, oh, a piranha fish. That's where I was going. Uh, and that's, I was like, you know, it's something that's very evil. But no, I think a pariah is actually like a social pariah is like an outcast, somebody that doesn't fit in. Right. Which completely changes what I think this movie is going to be <laughs> based on what I've been thinking for the last couple of days. So it's probably given that it's like, now that I know like the Spike Lee connection, I'm, a, I'm assuming it's going to be some kind of a coming of age story about an outcast teen. Okay. Well, yeah. And I actually, I just searched it did win. Um, it didn't win, but it premiered at Sundance. Uh, 2011 okay so it's almost it's nine years old happy birthday pariah here we go all right let's dive in let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat all right so we just finished and what do you think wow it immediately had such a strong vibe, such mm. a strong world from that very first scene at the the catnip bar, the colors and uh, the music. I like right right from the get go. I was into it. How about you? Yeah, I think the strengths of this movie are definitely like the world building, like in terms of like you get a tone and a sense of like this person and the filmmaker right away. Like, you know, you feel comfortable and safe. And it's like, I'm in good hands, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of just like the feeling and the vibe and all that kind of stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think the way she reveals the story slowly works really well. I have some some issues with the movie overall, but I think like right. the, the big strengths I walked away with were that it's like, oh, this is someone that is a filmmaker. Uh, mm-hmm. And for whatever, you know, strengths or weaknesses the film overall has, you can see why the you can see this as a, as a first step in like a career that what, that is just going to keep on booming and blossoming. Yeah, like that's what you want from a first feature, right? I mean, you want a voice um, to feel a voice. You want to feel uh, an authenticity. You want to feel that stamp of uh, a vision and being able to articulate a vision. You want to see a capacity to work with actors. I mean, I thought. Oh, performances the, are great. The young actors that played Lee and Laura, I mean, even the young actor that played Bina, I mean, 
those were some strong moments and strong performances. Like from the, so from the get go, absolutely a world. I think I wrote down, um, you know, you hear the, the, the door person or whatever, say 18 to party, 21 to drink. And then there's a vibe and that camera just like rolling down the, the rope. Right. Yeah. And all the colors were sort of red, greens, yellows, blues, like immediately vibrant in these beautiful close-ups. And then the track was, um, you know, all you ladies pop your pussy like this, <laughs> lick my pussy and my crack. I'm like, okay, yes. Yeah, we're, That's the a, first track. Yeah, I, I now I know what world I'm a movie I'm in. And, and just like the point of view of the way that it was shot too. It's like, this is a movie that's got a point of view. She's not like going for some master scene technique here. She knows when like, even that I was really impressed by that one scene when she's at the club with that girl that she's first into the one that um, the, the quote yeah. unquote popular hot girl. And yeah. it just holds on her. Like you know, that, that girl doesn't get any kind of coverage at all. She's just like profile in that one shot. And then that's it. That's all we get. And that's all we need. Right. Cause it's not about her. Exactly. We, we know exactly who's driving the story. We know where we want to be sitting. And um, it's, it's all in that incredible intimacy with the camera that brings us into not only the world, but this character. And then we're with her all the way through. I mean, there were some, there were some moments I was feeling so strong, like how many times have we seen that first kind of night with someone you like and you've been very guarded and cautious and then you slowly start opening up and you know there's a little bit of like touching and then that first kiss happens and it's sometimes awkward bad like you feel the mechanics of it you feel the dialogue written you feel the you know maybe this is the third take that's in the film it just doesn't have that you know that 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 believability but in that scene with lee and um bina that night you know bina's kind of stroking her arm and then there's like some reluctance there's some caution and then they laugh and it almost feels improvised like it's almost like d said we're just going to play this out real time let's drop the script let's just play it for real and it took its time and and i just thought that was beautifully played like all around beautifully you, shot beautifully played even the follow up uh echoing scene of that like the next time they hang out after she apologizes for withdrawing uh and it's and they're just awkward it's like what's up and they and they're looking at each other and then the other one's looking at each other too long and it's like what and they keep on like neither one wants to bring it up it's just like it's like yeah it's like a game of chicken in a weird way where it's like, who's going to make the first move. They're both, they both know now that they're into it, but it's yeah. like, who's going to make that first move. And just that wonderful, like you feel there's an energy there that it feels real. Like you were saying, there's it doesn't, it doesn't, yeah. yeah, it doesn't feel like we're, we're doing something. Um, yeah. It's just great. It just didn't feel like acting. Exactly. Which is, I think, um, you know, again, we sort of talked in the intro that she had made a short and I just done a bit of research that the young actors that played, well, the lead Lee, um, Laura, and also the sister, I think, uh, Sharonda, they were all in the short. Oh, great. So they, so they had some experience the, working together and. 
Yeah. So they'd already been through the short film. The short film made a little bit of a mark, um, played a whole bunch of film festivals. And then five years later, they do the feature. And so there's already chemistry. There's already uh, working things out together. The characters were known. Um, they'd already played them. And I thought, again, they stepped into it so beautifully. Even the sister, the chemistry with the sister and coming in another room and the dildo moment, getting the strap on. I love that Fantastic scene. awkwardness and just genuine um, beauty, like the the innocence of it, the desire of it, just gorgeous. And like, there's no brown one. Like she could only find a white, you know, dildo. Um, I'm not going back. Yeah. Didn't want to go yeah, back. Can, yeah. Um, I love, so let's talk about some of the, weak parts the mom and dad oh yeah i mean the thing about this is like it's it's kind of like it's already the whole movie itself is already a trope right it's that coming out story uh coming coming out coming of age story which to be fair it's 10 years later now so it's like you know you have to give this film the context of its time and at that point there'd probably you know there'd been a number uh and i think the thing that bothered me the most about this film was it just felt like it's really going through the tropes of all the, the coming of age stuff that we've seen in a lot of other movies. And every now and then they, they're doing something really unique with it. Like the, the strap on scene uh, and stuff like that, that it's like, Oh, that's unique to this world and to this character's point of view. And, and I just wanted more of that where I felt like too often we were just dealing with like the typical tropes of like the mom and the dad who were, you know, religious beliefs uh, precluded them from being able to support their child in the way that they should. And that kind of stuff, just those kind of things felt like, Oh, I've seen that before. And I just wanted to see more of what is this world and unique to this particular sto- coming out story. And, and I, yeah, and I, and go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I agree with you. Like I think in the first half, it almost felt like, okay, knowing that, it was a struggle to raise the money for the feature at that time. She started, you know, 2007 was the short and 2011 um, was the feature. And I have a feeling with the parents, because I've experienced this when I focused, you know, stories on young protagonists coming of age, sometimes distributors and funders want the parent story more fleshed out Mm. because they feel like that, is, you know, it's necessary maybe to widen the audience or, you know, um, I don't know what, make it more universal. Like there has to be tension between the mom and dad and projection onto the kids and those relationships and those. So I almost feel like, because Dia said that this story is somewhat autobiographical, that she had a really hard time um, in terms of being accepted, I think, especially by her mom when she came out. So I feel like it's perhaps taking some of what she experienced, but then I see the hands of the industry Mm. meddling in there a little bit because I felt so impressed by how little exposition there was from the beginning. And then as soon as the parents came in, it started to get heavy handed. And that almost feels like a by committee. Like you need to explain things because otherwise people aren't going to get it. And I felt like some of that was happening. That's exactly what it was. It felt like like the first act was set up this like really nuanced movie that wasn't going to spoon feed us stuff. And then the back half of it 
was the opposite. And it just mm-hmm. felt like, it, not to say that it felt like it was two different movies, but it felt like, it's almost like the B story felt like it, someone else made that or mm-hmm. wrote that anyway. Especially with, because mm-hmm. the, the stuff with, like, it was just so expositional with the parents mm-hmm. stuff and the, the dad on that phone call, that's clearly he's talking to a mistress. Mm-hmm. And it's just mm-hmm. all those kind of things. It just felt so heavy handed. Uh, and it but just, then I sort of felt like it recovered. Like I yeah. felt for me in the middle part, there was some heavy handed, you know, exposition laid on very thick. But then I thought there was actually a recovery in the third act, like the seed that was planted with the mom um, when she said, you know, in terms of her daughter being gay and being in complete denial about that, refusing to accept it. She said, God does not make mistakes. I love the callback to that later on. Right. And the callback later is fantastic. Like tell mom she was right. Yeah. And the dad says about what? And she says, God doesn't make mistakes. Like beautiful. I thought that was, that was super, that was super gorgeous. And there was some other really nice callbacks in the, in the, in the final act. So I, I thought that the parents, not the mom's character quite so much because again, in that final scene where Lee goes to see her at work and says, I love you. And it's, she does a beautiful, I think a beautiful moment. It's not too much tears, but the emotion is genuine right there. She says, mom, I love you. The mom's silent. And she repeats, she goes, I, I said, I love you. Yeah. And the mom says, I'll I'm going to pray for you. What? Like de- that, that devastated. Like that, that was, so that was, I sort of felt. It brought it back. For me, that the mom was there there was some beats that the mom was playing that were in the pocket for me to feel that moment at the end mm-hmm. yeah i will say i did like that the mom didn't have like the typical like epiphany and come back around like the, I, I like that I, I like the dad was the one that was kind of like more accepting and understanding. I like that she didn't move back in, that she had to go off and do her own thing. Yes. Like, I like that. Like that kind of stuff felt really realistic and yes. and smart and good. So it's just, it's really the middle of the movie where it just feels like it, it's on, like you said, it's like she's getting notes from the wrong people going, you got to hit this and hit this and hit this. So the audience sticks with it where I'm like, I don't know for me personally, a movie like this, it's like, that's not the kind of audience that's into a movie like this. The ones that you need to spoon feed and, and hit the hands. Like they don't, they don't, you're not serving the audience that you've set up for. But that said, yeah. it's like, again, it's like first feature. The fact that, you know, there's not more of that is already impressive, you know? Oh yeah. So many things. I would say like race 75% done so right. Mm-hmm. And you know, when I, when you look at her, you know, I didn't see her, her second and I think Mudbound was her third, but when you see where she graduated to with Mudbound, you're like, Ooh, she's been applying those lessons. Cause there's, there's no heavy hand exposition in that. It just moves so courageously into like the thick of the characters and the conflict. So, I mean, again, I think in terms of a coming out story actually avoided many of the tropes I've seen, like a thing with a guy, you know, like Lee and a guy or, um, 
the like again a, the beautiful relationship and hurtful kind of dynamic between Laura and Lee and that character of Laura. I mean, can we just talk about her for a minute? Yeah. So complex with juggling the job, um, living with her sister, uh, trying the to correspondence. do Yeah. The GED. That's yes, getting to the mom. Ooh. Yeah. That scene when they're at that, like the, the beach party or the, that, that part, is it a beach party? The party outside. And, and they sit and they're sitting together and she tells her she loves her. And it's just that, that look on her face. Cause, and it's just that great moment that they never, and again, this is like where the beauty of the nuance of the film is working because they, uh, um, Lee has this look on her face. And she's like, what is that? What do you mean? Like what kind of love? Like that doesn't get answered. And then the other two, like there are two love prospects sit down beside them and it's, and she never gets the answer and the film never provides that. So I love that. And I'm like, yes, that's the movie I'm watching. Give yes. me, give that kind of stuff the whole thing. So that, yes. that moment was devastating and beautiful. Just to that, your point of how complicated Laura was. Yes. And also to Laura saying in that moment, you know, I'm so happy for you. Like, I'm so happy to see you happy, but I just got to get something off my chest. Like, I love you, you know? And yeah, like the, the pain, the, um, the everything that's being sort of held back but it wasn't overplayed. Like there was no tears. It was just, it was kind of delivered with so much strength and um, deliberateness, but not milked in any way. Tonally, that was gorgeous. Yeah. And they didn't try to like force the two of them into a a relationship by the end of the film, which I think a lesser filmmaker would have done. Uh, And I love this stuff with the church friend, but I saw that coming. I kind of, as soon yeah. as they were like arguing on the way to school that one time, I was like, okay, this is their yeah. meet cute. Uh, yeah. And they're definitely going to be, although I did like what I, what I liked that I thought was a bit more nuanced and, and, and unique was that the church friend was the one, uh, Jen, was her name Jen? No. The, the, the mother or the girl? The girl. Bina. Bina, right. Why did I think Jen? Anyway, um, uh, she, what I liked was that she made the first move, which was slightly, mm-hmm. which is not quite expected. I'm like, she's totally into her, but I was expecting the, the trope would be the reverse where, you know, our hero makes the first move, gets rejected. And then the other one, and then, and then Bina comes around, but I liked that yeah. it, it was inverted, which was, yeah. which was nice. And I felt fresh for, for this sort of thing. Yeah, and beautifully played in terms of, okay, so Bina makes the first move on our protagonist. Our protagonist retreats, cautiously hangs back, hangs back, finally kind of surrenders into the feeling she's got and decides to trust it. And then what happens, I mean, like, again, you sort of, into, I'm, you're, I'm protective of our, of our Lee and she's guarding her heart and she's guarding her heart. And then she lets herself feel. And then the worst happens, right? The next morning, what does Bina do? She pulls back, she retreats, and she kind of punishes. And those brutal words of, like, I'm not gay, gay. I'm just doing my thing. Like, I'm not looking for a relationship. And then crushes Lee, who put herself out there. Like, I thought that was played brutally and truthfully and was devastating because you know what what 
letting Lee feel like what, what letting herself feel cost her. It cost her, you know, a bit of tension with her best friend, Laura. It cost her flying in the face of her parents. She, it cost her, you know, just, um, basically owning what she knows she is. It, it really, there was a, there was a high stakes to what she did. And then Bina just devastates her. So I felt like that rage moment after was beautiful. And the camera being so alive and crazy and haphazard, again, gorgeous choice. Oh yeah. Kicking I, the like garbage that. cans. Garbage cans, but also at home and just, it didn't get melodramatic and she didn't like crumble into a little like pile of tears. She just raged and the camera and the sound and everything was raging with her. And I thought that was great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I love that too. And then it leads us into, you know, that really, I thought, which I thought was played really well, the, the mother and the father freaking out. And, you know, the mother through the whole movie is saying, talk to the daughter, talk to the daughter, talk to the daughter. And then the father said, I did, I did. She's got a boyfriend. It's fine. I talked to her. And then Arlie says, I'm lesbian. And the mother goes bananas, screaming at her, beating her, damning her. I thought that was strong. Did you yeah. feel that moment? What I loved about the parents, like despite like the... <laughs> It's not it's not a flaw necessarily in performance so much as a flaw in just like script, I think, in some of the scenes. But like what I loved about even in those scenes, and particularly this scene, is at no point are they trying to like do that thing some actors do where they're just even though they're doing something harsh, they're still trying to be likable. Right. And I and I didn't feel like they were ever trying to be liked or trying to so I thought that that was because I'm sure I, I know I feel this way. I, I've often looked back at moments of, you know, where I've been with the people that I love the most and been my worst. And and the way that it's just like you don't hold back when you're being shitty to the people you love because you know that they'll accept it. And I'm like, and that's such an honest thing when you see that in the movie because I know I've said, you know, it's just been the worst to the people that I love the most because I know they'll forgive me uh, and I don't have to, you know, shield myself from that and i so I, I really really appreciated that in these performances right yeah there was no yeah pulling that um want to be likable card that mom went all the way like to the very end to i'm gonna pray for you Ugh. and that dad you know that dad on the rooftop on that scene did try to say you know you can always come home and I, I like I just thought the film was so strong at the end. I mean, so strong with her saying, I'm not coming home, but like I'm not running. I thought that was I'm yeah. not running, I'm choosing. I'm choosing not to come back home. Like that I, I love that line. That statement. Gorgeous. And then again, a beautiful echo with at the very beginning, we know she's got this notebook of poems and stories she's written. We see Lee, you know, tell, share a couple of them in the class. And then at the end, she comes back to the teacher we met at the beginning and she's sharing this poem where the teacher basically said, I think you can do better. I think you can go deeper. And this poem that she shares at the end about heartbreak and break breaking open 
and being open and not being being broken, but being broken open. And that breaking is freeing and broken is freedom. And she's not broken. She's free. Like that was, I thought, gorgeous and just kind of brought everything together. But again, not in a manipulative, you know, pull on your heartstrings, get you to cry way, but in a tough, real, authentic, this is life. It's not freaking easy. Um, and somehow we're going to get through it way. Yeah. Yeah. She's got a story to tell after this. There's still more, that, but this is our first chapter and, and how she gets from being that kid. That's just like writing beautiful poems that are, you know, aesthetically pleasing to look at and the right word choice about the cobwebs or whatever it is mm-hmm. to getting into real shit. And I think, and I'm sure you get that because you teach as well as I do. And just like, you know, reading submissions from students and, and just letting them know it's like, yeah, it's like everything you did here on paper is technically right. It's like you got the beats, there's a structure, but it's like it could be better. It could be more of you, like put some of you in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, like what you've done is you've hit all the beats mm-hmm. and that's good, but it's not, but you can do better. And and I love that yeah. moment with a teacher where it's just like, yeah, it's fine. And that disappointment that the student has where the students are just like, well, I just wanted to get it right. And it's like, well, that's not what we're doing here. We're not trying to get it right. We're trying to do something real. Yeah. Um, and again, it's like it, you, as a student, as a filmmaker, especially when you're starting out, you hear those words and, and you want to put yourself in it. But how do, how do you do that? It's like you have to have confidence to do that. It's a practice thing. You learn how to do it on the back of every film a little bit more and a little bit more. So again, I'm impressed with, and I didn't see the short um, pariah, but I'm impressed with this feature that you can already see the filmmaker, writer, director, Dee Reese, putting her guts into this work. And you know, like Lee, you know, who's now graduated from writing this sort of like shallow poem to writing the deeper one that she's just going to keep, keep flying. Yeah. And D like D and this character in her film, you know, are kind of on a parallel trajectory. And then D Reese, the filmmaker just took off. Yeah. And, and, you know, very soon after that, it's like you see more of that, that work where it's like, she's, she's playing in the nuance. She knows what the world is. She's not letting those, the the tropes and like the, the unnecessary moments play in a mm-hmm. way they don't need to anymore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a strong movement. Uh, I was thinking for a second when we were chatting about just like the voice. And I think it's such an interesting thing for anyone, any young filmmakers listening. This is something mm-hmm. I do with my students and I kind of stole it from the, the Myra Nair masterclass mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. where she talks about, she has this um, like, let's say a 30 question, like survey she gave herself and it's about, it's almost like doing a character bio for your, for your own life. And it's like, mm. what, what is your, ba- cause the idea being, I think there's so many people out there that go, well, there's nothing unique about me. Like I just grew up in like a suburb with like a typical family. We did this and that. And it's like, you know what, but that is unique. And, and little things like people always think that it's like, cause I think the other thing too, is people think that, you know, the stuff they do, other families do because they don't necessarily talk about their things and they don't realize all the little things, all the little nuances. Mm -hmm. And so one of the first assignments I give my students, and it's an assignment that they don't have to actually hand in, is to do like a big write-up 
just answering, going through this thing and answering all these questions about themselves and their family and their background. And I said, do it at some point and then keep it and then just refer to it when you, when you write and just know that you can pull from that and that there is unique stuff in there. And that's where Mm -hmm. I think like this film, when, when, when the moments are really, really gelling, it's like, it's feeling like that's where she's pulling from. She's pulling from her book of life uh, Mm -hmm. and, and you're getting a real sense of her. And then, and then there's like whatever influence we're assuming was on her to like hit this and hit that. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. The one thing I read up on this film um, was that it was supported by the Adrian Shelley foundation. Uh, oh. And then, so that was, that came out of Sundance, I think, or maybe not. Okay. I didn't um, know that. Yeah. I don't know to what point it erodes grants. So she probably got some, that was probably something. Maybe she has some development money or something coming out of the mm-hmm. short to, mm-hmm. to help make that. But uh, mm-hmm. but I don't know who chairs that or anything. No, I mean I like I would like to see that Miranair thirty questions uh, thing you got from the masterclass. Or what oh, fire it over! Yeah, I would love to see that. I mean, I just did a a, a a talk with three filmmakers yesterday for a Whistler Film Festival panel, and I sort of ask, or sometimes I ask, you know, what advice would you give your you're starting out self. Um, I didn't ask that yesterday, but I did ask a question about, you know, what you felt you learned on the back of this film that you're going to take into the next one. And so often it's, you know, trusting myself, um, n- fighting for the things, uh, fighting for the things I really believe in more forcefully, like not giving up. And I, when I think about this film, I, I could imagine, you know, people swirling around D and saying, you know, if you develop the characters, if you hit these beats, if, you know, that you got to inject this kind of conflict, it needs more, con- the parents need more conflict. And um, we got to get to know them more. And, and she's thinking, ah, eh, that's not really what I'm interested in, but you know, it doesn't feel right to do that. And I, I'm not really interested in that storyline or developing the dad with the affair and the mom wearing the lingerie and making the dinner plates for him when he comes home. Although there was a great payoff beat where she threw them all in the garbage. Mm-hmm. Um, but you just sort of give in to that stuff, especially if you just need that last bit of money and it's sort of the dangling character. Like if you, if you develop the parents a bit more, you'll get this last bit of money. And then as you go through it and what the filmmakers were saying yesterday is you go, no, I'm not, it doesn't feel right to do that. I am not going to betray my gut. I'm going to have to, this film is going to, you know, be part of my life forever. Funders come and go, other people come and go, but it becomes a part of your identity, your voice, your whole career path. And you just start to say, I'm not going to relent on that. It, it feels wrong. It feels cheap. It feels reductive. And if that means I'm going to lose that bit of funding, I'll just, I'll just wear that. I'll find another way. Like you start to develop that muscle. Don't you find? Yeah. Well, you, and you just get, a, a strong, I mean, it's just the nature of making more stuff is you get a stronger sense of what works and what doesn't work. Uh, yeah. What you, what, what you walked away from feeling gross about in the last one going, you know, I wish I hadn't done that. Like I wish yeah. I'd have stuck to this or that. Um and you don't want regrets. You don't want those, like, I'm try, I am try to, through every film, have fewer and fewer regrets. And you always end up having some. You gave up on that, or you relented to that, you compromised here, you, you know. But fewer and fewer is a... And also, on the tip of drawing from your own life, um, 
on the tip of drawing from your own life, I also, I tell my students to write down the specific things that make you feel something, make you feel angry, make you feel um, um, confused, make you feel uh, like turned on. Um, Because sometimes I think when people write, let's say fight scenes, they're really written with a lot of exposition. And so today, for example, I had a fight, like an argument with John. And you know what it was about? It was about we bought two yogurts and I had very intentionally put the one that I'd opened in the front and the one that hadn't been opened in the back. And then today I noticed they were both opened. And John said, no, I was conscious. Like I picked them both up and then he opened the one he felt was lighter, but he didn't like open the lid to see. So now we have two open yogurts and that pissed me off so royally that he wouldn't have opened the lid of the yogurt to check, but he just kind of lifted them. And I was like, what kind of consciousness is that? That's not consciousness. That's like some weird half baked, uh, like, um, like not followed through feeling. I don't even know what that is, but anyways, we got into this huge thing. And I thought, I love scenes that are about yogurt, but then of yeah, course yeah. they're about so much more or as, as we construct our characters, you know, we know they're about so much more. Maybe they're about the holidays and the pandemic and not being able to see family and stresses rising or bills being unpaid or, but they're fighting about yogurt. Yeah. That's just, I just did a movie, uh, a scene in a movie where people fight over a, chick- uh, a sandwich, sandwich versus salad. And, but it's the same thing. It's like, what is the subtext? Right. Yeah, uh, and I think I think it's an Alan Ball quote where it's like I think well, I think this is probably in like a dozen screenwriting books, but it's the idea is like if a scene is about whatever the scene is about, you're in trouble. Yeah, you know it's it's the idea of like all about that subtext, and it's like and it's the same way. It's like the stuff yeah. that you know, like I, I think my wife and I, I think we're blessed to have the same kind of fights that you have with John, where like it's the stupid shit, and we always like after we're done, we come back to it. It's like hey, remember that fight we had about like the potato masher. It's like, wasn't that amazing that that's the kind of shit that we get mad about? I'm like, no, and don't you write that? I, I'm like, this is so many times I go, this is fantastic dialogue. And I, right in the middle of something, I go, John, John, wait a minute, wait a minute. I got to write this down because I forget it when I'm working on my screenplay. And I think in bringing it back to Pariah, I think that some of those scenes with the parents suffered from, there was no subtext. No. There was they, were ta- they were saying exactly what was going on. Yeah, the one scene that I thought, worked better than I was expecting going into it was that scene. I thought the dad was interesting because the dad was like definitely conflicted. There was that great scene in the store Mm -hmm. where um, that person comes in and the dad is clearly not like in the hate monger vibe. Like he's, he's not really joining either side. He's very neutral. And I Mm -hmm. thought that was well, like they, they, she, she wrote that line very well where, um, you kind of weren't sure because the dad is definitely the person you expect. I mean, that's the kind of cliche is the dad, especially a cop, right? He's the big tough dad, has a beer at breakfast because he just got off the night shift. And uh, it's just that kind of stuff, right? Uh, So I thought that scene, because there wasn't many, that's almost the only scene in the movie that wasn't from Lee's point of view, right? So just pulling Mm -hmm. us, narratively changing it whenever that happens, I think that was the other challenge. Like once they got into the more of the parents stuff that was kind of like pulled you out and was, was challenging was that we were so comfortable. And I think 
you know, the filmmaker was so comfortable in Lee's point of view and stepping out of that was where it was just less familiar territory. Yeah. Uh, and, and probably just because she hadn't injected enough of herself into those moments and scenes, which is, you know, I think a lesson she's definitely learned going forward. Yeah. And it takes time. I mean, here, what does it say? She says, um, you know, she came out to her parents. They weren't accepting. They sent her emails, cards, letters, and Bible verses. So again, it's almost, you know, and I've experienced this too, where I'm, I'm a little bit too close to the subject matter to get that objectivity that's needed to write the screenplay. So maybe even with the parents, it's a little bit too close. So you end up manufacturing and constructing a bit, whereas there was enough distance from when, you know, she was just coming out to be able to write those beautiful, rich, ripe roles for all the the young players. Yeah. Yeah. But that's okay. like Like, write what you... Right from the place, you know, or and on Bookbinder actually says in the way of the screenwriter, he says, most people will say, write what you know. Um, some people go for write what you don't know and do a bunch of research. And he kind of says, write what you don't know, you know, mm. which kind of inspires a sort of treasure hunt. Like you have a you have a spark, you have a feeling, you have um, a curiosity and attraction of something, and then you have to dig for that treasure. You have to uncover what it's about. So, you know, it's it's not again, it's not a path lit by street lamps. It's just it's a path maybe through a dark forest. Um, and you have to sort of, you know, take a machete and hack your way through it a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I think the trick, the, the way to, to have done those parent scenes would be to have them through her point of view, you know, and, and how she hears them, like the, like, like the half conversations she hears, as opposed to like just having us a scene with the mom and dad sitting down fighting. It's like, what's the version where she's just seeing that from the other room? Well, which happens twice. We hear them fighting when she's yeah. in her bedroom in the middle. And actually that would played really well. That's all and you then- needed. Yeah, and then we hear that's uh, the fight again when she comes down the stairs and basically gets into it um, and comes out to her parents, and then all of that unleashes. But that both of those scenes that worked best between the parents was when it played off Lee's point of view. Yeah, yeah, Go and ahead. I think you probably could have cut those other ones out completely, and the audience still would have got everything they needed. Yep. Probably at the, I think, I don't know, the running time was uh, 96, uh, 96 minutes, something like that. It probably could have had 10 minutes taken out of the middle. Mm. Yeah. And, and be, boom. Yeah. It wouldn't, it had a good pace and it had a good flow, but it just like seems like that just kind of like pulled the movie into a bit of a stop. And but we are it. kind of nitpicking because yeah, oh, think, we are. Yeah, I think we're nitpicking. We're we're basically pulling apart this first feature that, if I'd seen this in 2011, I think I would have. It just it would have blown my socks off. I think I would have just went wow, and I would have instant fan. Yeah, that well, that's, I mean, I'm an instant. I was an instant fan just from the movie. Just so those that we were talking about over the top, and the idea of like instantly. That's what I always want to see in a film. I'm like, I want to know if I'm in good hands, and and the, that's the one thing that instantly I went, okay, I'm gonna even you know whatever shortcomings this movie might have, and I'll, most of the time I I let that kind of stuff go because I'm just like I'm in for the ride. Uh, 
and it's just whenever something just pulls me out, it's the only time I was like, oof. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, but that's about it. It's like for yeah, for a first feature, mm-hmm. it's it's amazing, you know. Yeah, and I'm what, curious. What, I'm curious what kind of mentorship she got from Spike Lee because we see Spike Lee as an executive producer on this film. We know that she interned for him. That he was her teacher at NYU. Um, so I wonder, you know, if again Spike had his eyes on the screenplay, probably on cuts, probably, and then again, probably helped shepherd this film into Sundance and a little bit out into the world. So it yeah. didn't hurt to have a Spike, a Spike Lee on your team. No, it never does. <laughs> yeah, we we need a Spike Lee on our team. Do you have we a need- Spike Lee on your team? I don't. Mm-hmm. No, we need the Canadian version of a Spike Lee. I mean that. I think it. I mean, I again, that's something for for filmmakers listening, just to that that mentorship. And if there's filmmakers that you admire, that you respect, that you look up to, reach out to them. See if they'll read a draft. See if they'll look at a cut. See if they'll executive produce. Because I think that is that's a beautiful relationship. That again, we just kind of did it on our own. Although I think of like Peter Mettler, I think of, uh, you know, even my stuff with Charles Officer, like getting mentorship from the Canadian Film Centre. And um, if, you know, I have friends that look at every single one of my rough cuts, like Alexander Rockingham Gill. So I, I would say I, I seeked out people that become a bit of a, you do too. I mean, you have people look at your cuts and I, de- I definitely have stuff. that now. I wish I would have done that more when I first started off. But I was one of those people that just felt I didn't want to bother anyone. I didn't want to like, but now I, 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 you know, I tell my students, I'm like, reach out to the filmmakers. There's not that hard. They'll, and they, they have time. And if they don't, then they'll let you know when they do have time. Yes. And, you know, back in the time when people could meet up, it's like, I'd have coffee with anyone who was willing to come to my neighborhood. Yes. You know, and, and I'll often, you know, there's, there's a number of filmmakers that I'm, you know, unofficially mentoring and reading drafts and doing that kind of stuff. And just where I can, because it's just, I mean, it's a good exercise for myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but also it's just like, it's inspiring to see, you know, the next, the, the next generation of filmmakers and kind of what, where they're at. And, and the idea is like, if you can just get someone like a little kind of like, and the conversations we often have are these conversations where it's just like, you know, trust yourself more. Like here's the good stuff. Here's the bad writing and just get rid of that and trust mm-hmm. that it's like, you can, you can get rid of a scene because you can write another scene. Mm-hmm. You know, you can write a better version of this bad scene and it's okay. Mm-hmm. And you still have the other one that you can always go back to and look from, but it's just like, just trust yourself that if you wrote something halfway good you can write it all the way good by just doing the work yeah and what do you think of I mean in terms of making a short you know making a short in the theme or in the genre of the feature that you have your sights on or making a short as Dee Reese did she took you know one act of her feature and kind of changed it around to be a standalone short and then that short really became a calling card for her to make the feature how do you, what advice would you give a filmmaker in terms of how to maximize the effect or impact of making a short? I think that's the smartest way to do it. I, that's what I kind of tell any, anyone I'm mentoring or my students is that it's like make, uh, you know, 
people are going to want to, whether you like it or not, you've got to kind of pigeonhole yourself to some extent at the beginning. Mm-hmm. You, know, you want, I say, what you want to do is you want to focus on your voice. So you should be creating works that are in your voice and not to say your voice can't and won't change over time, but it's like the idea is like whatever feature you want to work towards, make sure you're doing work leading up to it. That is in the same voice, because mm-hmm. if you make this killer short and it's this one thing, but the feature you want to do is way over here. It's like the short is kind of useless because if you're like, well, I want to do a feature, but it's a totally different thing. It's like any of the goodwill the short might have made you, you might not carry over. And, and you kind say, of ground zero with the feature again because people are like, well, how do I know you can pull this off? And you're like, well, I made it short, but it's like, yeah, the short's completely different. How do I know that you can make this now? So you're yeah. sort of at so, proving I'm, yourself. Yeah, so I, I believe that it's like you should be working towards a feature at some point, right? And so it's like the short should be a calling card or a stepping stone to that. So it should be in the same vein. And I also try to encourage people too. I'm like, don't make 20 shorts, you know, don't make even five shorts. I'm like the amount, especially after a while, it's like make enough that you know what you're doing. You know, and if it's clear after one that you know what you're doing and you're good at this, then maybe that's all you need. Some people need more because it's just it's free practice. Right. Mm. Uh, Because I also think that it's like the more ambitious the short it's like, you know, this It's like sometimes it takes as much effort to prep and get a short ready as it would be a feature. And, you know, as you know, you're you're the DIY queen uh, of Canada. But it's like I always tell my students, I'm like, I hold up my phone and I'm like, you can make a film with this. Yeah. You know, no Soder- excuse. Soderbergh has done it. Tangerine was done on it. It's like, you know, it's not going to be the best looking film, but it's like, but it can be done. It's like all the tools you need. You know, when I do my weekend uh, boot camp course, uh, a two day course, I, I do like once or twice a year. I tell people, I'm like, if you have two grand, you can make a feature. And half of that yeah. is to feed, half of that is to feed people. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I would say if you're going to shoot a film on a phone, though, make sure you get great sound because I feel like we can be quite accommodating with artifacted image and pixels. And, you know, I'm pretty camera agnostic, like we're used to seeing crappy looking images on our phones and on YouTube and low res. So, but But sound, sound. yeah has yeah. got to be smooth yeah that of that two thousand dollar budget 400 of it is like this particular sound thing that you can this sound bo- recorder you can buy okay but it's just one of those it's just and not to say that you should you know i don't know if you'll make the best feature for two grand but it's like you could you know oh, yeah and and if you can raise more than that then great you know no i but mean it, we made we did the one thousand dollar feature film yeah. challenge and five features were made for a thousand dollars each so in a three month period and screened at the Royal on a big screen and held up. So we know it can happen, but definitely the idea needs to be scaled to those. Again, it's a scaling of idea with the time, with the money, with the resources. And I often start with, okay, who do you know? What do you have? Like, look at the locations you have access to look at the, the people you have access to and build something from that. As opposed to needing all this stuff and being dependent on all these things that are out of your hands in order for your film to happen. Yeah, that's the exact point. I'm saying make a list, make a, a list of all the stuff, all the resources you have, all the cool things you have. What like what locations do you have access to that people will let you yes. shoot at for free? Yes. Any special vehicles, any cool props and just anything. Yes. 
And what can yes. you build around that that could tell an interesting story? Yes. I mean, I have not let, I, you know, when I started writing my last script um, that I was hoping to shoot in the spring of this 2020 pandemic year in the UK, and obviously that didn't happen, but I remember starting to write that and again, thinking, I'm not going to have track. I'm not going to have any kind of, you know, fancy rig. I'm going to have a camera in someone's hands. So, you know, visually, I'm I'm already, I've got obstructions, I've got limitations. So I do not even let myself write a single word in my script that I know I can't execute. That's just like, I, I can't even because that producer part of my brain is always cramping my writer's style. It's always in there going, you're not going to be able to pull that off. You're not going to get that money. You're not going to have that access. So... I don't even, I don't even dare to write it on the page, Yeah. which some people would say I'm dreaming too small, but I'm like, I, I can't really afford to dream big. I just don't want to write something I can't produce. No. Or that's going to take you 10 years to get to do, you know, you want to yeah. write. Cause I used to do that. I started off writing these bigger giant pieces and I started realizing like, that's not something I can actually do now. Like, let me right. Uh, and I have different projects that I developed that I'm like, these are ones that I know I can make in the short term because everything is achievable. And these are ones that it's like, will take longer to set up, but I can be taking my time setting those up, knowing I'm going to do these other ones. I just did, you know, a movie in September that we shot up at this, at my farm uh, with just like 20 people cast and crew. And it was the same thing. It was like, what do we have access to? I'm like, I, have a, I have a six acre property that it's like, it, it, we can do a gorgeous chamber piece that's all just shot here and it'll yeah. look great because it's it's the property's big the house is a good size and the rooms are all like you can every you know you're not you're not having to repeat locations and angles over and over again it doesn't look yeah. like it's a single location film and you're uh, not going to be kicked out of the location no 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 one's going to kick us out of the location because it's in our family that's just it right uh, and people can stay here too you know and, and we can keep it small and we can and, you know knowing the covid things that are going on too. It's like, we can all bubble together too and, and, and stay safer as well. That way we don't, we're not mopping around from a different location every other day. Mm-hmm. Right. Great. Uh, and just, and so that's the other thing too, is especially now in the new world we're in, it's like, take that into consideration too, with these lower budget movies that, you know, what, what's the least amount of people you can get away with. Yeah. I was like, people said like, what's your styles? My style is <clears throat> being pragmatic. Yeah. Because again, we, we do, we, we love making films. I want to be making a film every couple of years. That's the, that's the adrenaline. That's the, that's the juice for me not being in development for five years. That's just it. And what I love about what you do too is, is a similar thing to how I try to approach everything is like, you always seem to come up with this really great, like you try to paint yourself into a really interesting corner. Uh, and, and, and you're just kind of constantly challenging the form and going, I want to try this. Like, you know, you did a movie with no score where it's like the score was going to be different every single time. And what an incredible yeah. risk risk that is as a filmmaker to go and freeing too to just go, I'm going to let this be come whatever it needs to be. Right. Shooting film, yeah. a film with like actors that you don't speak the language. Yeah. You know, that kind of stuff. Like you're always just like really, really experimenting and playing with the form in a way that I think keeps you on your toes and is exciting for you. Right. Yeah. Uh, Different challenges for sure. Yeah. And I think that's 
what makes you really exciting for me as a filmmaker to watch. Uh, where I think a lot of filmmakers don't do that. Like they, they just sit back and they go, well, I did that before and that worked. So I'll just do that again. Like when, when um, Jonas and I did the film we did in September, it, was, it all came out of this conversation going, if we did something together again, what would it be? And I said, I'd want it to be something I'd never done before. Mm-hmm. So it ended up being like an experimental improvised film, um, mm-hmm. which is something I had never done before. Uh, and something right. that, that terrified me but also really, yeah. really invigorated me and excited me. Uh, yeah. And for Jonas to I make, mean, he's always wanted to do that kind of thing as an actor as well, to have yeah. to work, not, you know, develop a character, but not be able to just have a script to work off of. Yeah. Yeah. So what would you like kind of bringing it back to the first feature? What advice would you give your first feature self now? Yeah. I think, I mean, I think I, you know, whether it's good or not, I don't know my first feature, but it's like, I think it's, it, I definitely set out to make a film that only that I would want to watch. And I think that's always my advice. Make, make, don't try to make the film that you think is going to get into Sundance or that you think is going to sell around the world. It's because you can't control that. We're, focus on the things you can control. Uh, and then you're hedging your expectations in a realistic way anyway. Just tell a story that you would want to see that you would pay 10 bucks to see. And then chances are someone else would as well. And then also tell a story that only you could tell Mm -hmm. because it's so easy to just go, well, you know, to try to like, you know, do all the things, all the most famous screenwriting books do. And not to say that you shouldn't read those and shouldn't study those, but the idea is like tell a story only you can tell. And that's what will make, that's what will put your stamp on it. And what's your version of this and how do you get rid of the tropes or, or know what the tropes are and spin them to yourself? I guess my, my advice would be a little bit, it's similar, maybe coming at it from a slightly different angle. And it would be, don't save anything for later. Yes. Like, you know, people say, make the, make it as though this is make the film as though it's the last film you're ever going to make. But I almost feel like it's, you know, sometimes people have this long-term vision of I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do that. And this is going to build to there and I'm going to start small and I'm going to go like, no, this is it. This is all you might ever do. Yes. Yeah, Don't with your- save any of it. Like anything you think you're holding back in terms like the thing you're most terrified to say, say it now. This might be your only chance. Yeah. The thing you're most terrified to explore, like I feel like when you're completely or when I've been really uncertain and conflicted and and scared and terrified, that's where I want to go. And there's no saving that up for when I, ha- I have more courage because I don't, you know, it's like I'm always going to be scared and uncertain and terrified and unsure. So I think it's always for me you know, if I was going to give myself advice starting out, it would be just don't hold back for anything in the future. Put it all into what you're doing right now. I love that. Yeah. No, I think it's a similar thing. There's, there's, um, uh, Louis CK did this thing where he, you know, comedians always build to like the best joke at the end. Right. Mm. And so he used to do this thing where he would take, Whatever joke was at the end of his act, he put it at the beginning and it forced him to create better material after that. Mm. But, and that's something that you just wouldn't normally do. And it's, it's a similar idea. It's like, don't save anything. I think there's a, what is it? It's an 
existence that Ethan Hawke movie where it's like the they they didn't save anything for the swim back is that quote is like how right. did you swim how did you swim so far is it like, because I didn't save anything for the way back and I think that's uh, that's such a great that's such great advice for filmmakers so yeah don't save anything for your second feature because you might never get to make it put it all in this that's one right. and then you'll be then you'll write something you'll probably the thing that you thought was going to be your second feature you probably won't be interested in anymore. You change. Everything changes. You, we don't know what's what's gonna, coming up. So, um, yeah, it's it's not easy to do, but that would be, I think, my the the thing I would encourage is. Well, there's an insecurity. I think they they go, well, this is a great idea, and I got to hold on to it because I won't have another right. great idea. Right. And it's like, no, you will. If you had that great idea, you'll have another one. Yes. Give it up. Give it up. Love it. Don't hold back. Be yourself. So I would love to get, again, if you want any um, eyes on any cut or you might be beyond that, but you know, oh, you can nice. always call me. Oh, we'll do. We'll do. Okay. Well, thank you for this. Uh, any final thoughts on Pariah? No, I think we said it. Yeah. And I'm going to, I'm going to definitely um, pick up on the D Reese films that I've missed between Pariah and I think her latest Bessie. Um, there's a couple I've missed out on. So I'm going to, I'm going to track them down and see them, but I think for anyone who hasn't seen Pariah, go for it. Also, Mudbound and and look her up and keep your eyes on D. Reese. I think she's going to just keep going. Yeah, Mudbound's easy. It's on Netflix. And the other ones, um, there's a great, I, I try to plug this website as much as I can. There's a great website called justwatch.com. Okay. And you can um, set it to whatever region you're in. And if you type in the film, it, it'll tell you everywhere it's available, either on streaming services, rental, and purchase. Um and so it's, it, and it's usually right. Sometimes like when it says it's on Hoopla, it's wrong. <laughs> uh, but I find if it's like, it says it's on one of the, like the typical streaming services and it tells you if it's on like CTV. For oh, sure. smart. Great. Okay, great. So it's, it's a really great, it's called justwatch.com and whatever, wherever you are in the world, you set it to your region or it'll probably set itself automatically. It'll tell you where you can see films that you're looking to find online. Uh, so I highly recommend that site. It's great. That's a really good tip. And if you just type in like an actor or a filmmaker too, it'll come up with a dat- a list of all the different films that they're associated with. And it'll tell you a point form of those as well. So there's your, there's your, your hack for, for quickly finding, navigating the online streaming world of movies uh, in legal ways. Those, those are how you, you watch movies legally. Uh, Brilliant. I, I won't get into the other way. <laughs> well, thank you, Ingrid, for taking the time. Right on, Jeremy. My pleasure. I'm glad we got to do this. I've been wanting to do one with you for a long time. Yes, finally. So here we go. And it's the end of 2020. Good riddance. Yeah, this, this, will, this will be airing the, in the new year, in the early new year. But, but so hopefully we're, we're, we're bright into 2021. Excellent. I'm all ready for 2021. Let's, let's get to it. Me too. All right. Thanks, Ingrid. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> Let's all go to the Thanks for joining us for Pariah. Black Hole Films is a proud member of the That Shelf Podcast Network. You can listen to other episodes of our show and other That Shelf podcasts on thatshelf.com. Please subscribe, leave comments, spread the word, do all the things that let others know you like the show and how they can check it out. You can find me on Twitter, at Lon Jeremy, and go to Facebook and join the group Black Hole Films. And until next time, go watch something you've never seen before. Thanks. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat.